Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 24th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court declined a request to rehear the controversial Baker case that clarified the application of the COLA in live pension cases. On August 11th, the California Supreme Court issued its decision reversing the findings of the Court of Appeal. The decision was extremely favorable to employers. The Supreme Court concluded that the legislature intended that the COLA be calculated and applied prospectively, commencing on the January 1st, following the date on which the injured worker first becomes entitled to receive and actually begins receiving the benefit. The case was initially known as the Duncan case. However, it has now been renamed Baker v. WCAB now that Christine Baker has replaced John Duncan as DWC Administrative Director. A decision of the Supreme Court does not become final until 30 days after it has been filed. During the 30 days, the parties may petition for a rehearing of the case. On August 24th, the injured worker's attorney filed a rehearing petition. On October 19th, the Supreme Court entered an order which denied the rehearing. However, a two-page modification of opinion was filed by the court the same day. The modification made some non-substantive changes to the wording of the decision. One modification pointed out that it may be that an injured worker would become entitled to total permanent disability benefits and corresponding COLAs before the worker's medical condition is permanent and stationary. As an example, they noted, when temporary disability payments have expired, permanent disability payments must begin within 14 days. It is likely that these modifications were the result of trivial errors pointed out in the rehearing petition. The two-page modification concludes by saying, this modification does not affect the judgment. This ends the appeal process. The outcome of this case remains favorable to employers. A private investigator's case against the County of Los Angeles has been dismissed by the Court of Appeal under the California Anti-SLAPP Law. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Integrated Investigations Incorporated versus Christy L. O'Donnell. Integrated was hired to investigate Mary Villegas, a County of Los Angeles employee who had filed a workers' compensation claim and a civil sexual harassment claim against the county. Integrated assigned two investigators to conduct surveillance of Villegas. At one point during the surveillance, investigator Ian Farrell had an encounter with an unidentified man and woman in a Ford Mustang, which ended with a high-speed car chase. Integrated provided its report on the surveillance of Villegas to the county that did not include the incident involving the car chase. A month later, Integrated was asked to prepare a supplemental report addressing the car incident. A few days later, Integrated received a telephone call and an email from Christy O'Donnell, who said she was an attorney who represented the county in the Villegas civil lawsuit. Integrated claims that in a meeting in her office, she instructed them to amend their surveillance report, providing them word for word with the language to be added or deleted from the original report, 
and that she told investigator Ian Farrell to retrieve and destroy all copies of the original report. Sometime after the O'Donnell meeting, Integrated alleged they received several calls from various claims adjusters telling them that the county had sent out emails and other communications stating that Integrated was not to be used for any investigations on behalf of the county or other entities. Integrated, Paul Thornton, and Ian Farrell filed a lawsuit against the County of Los Angeles and Christy L. O'Donnell on various theories and alleged that the conduct of O'Donnell and the county has caused them harm in the amount of at least $10 million. O'Donnell provided evidence that during a civil mediation, Villegas asserted that an investigator hired by the county drove up to a car in which she was a passenger and her son was driving and yelled, this is an expletive warning. She said that she believed she was being warned that if she did not dismiss her civil lawsuit, she and her son would be physically harmed. Villegas reported the threat to the police and provided to the police a video she took of the incident. Investigator Ian Farrell denied using profane language. The second report filed by the investigators stated that they did not know that the woman in the Mustang was Villegas or that the driver was her son. It also stated that the warning was intended to inform the man that he was creating a dangerous situation and that they would be forced to call the police. O'Donnell viewed the video evidence given to the police of the encounter and concluded that Integrated falsified its report to the county. After showing the video to Integrated, demonstrating their version of the encounter to be wrong, O'Donnell claimed that Farrell said, Just tell me what to say. I'll say anything you want me to say. O'Donnell claims she told him to prepare a report that accurately reflects the incident. O'Donnell filed a motion to dismiss Integrated's complaint against her based upon the California anti-slap law and the above facts. California's anti-slap statute provides for a special motion to strike a complaint where the complaint arises from activity exercising the rights of petition and free speech. The trial court denied the motion. The Court of Appeal disagreed. In the unpublished opinion of Integrated Investigations Incorporated versus Christy L. O'Donnell, the order denying O'Donnell's special motion to strike was reversed and the trial court was ordered to grant her motion to dismiss. The Court of Appeal ruled that the statute of limitations for a carrier's lawsuit to collect premiums from an employer starts to run after the final premium audit is complete. Here's what happened in the published opinion of State Compensation Insurance Fund versus Wall Design. The state fund provided workers' compensation insurance to Wall Design Incorporated under two insurance policies. Wall Design failed to pay the premium payments and the policies were canceled in December 2003. Later, the amount of the final premium was determined through an audit of Wall Design's records. The fund, through its collection agent, sued Wall Design in October 2009 to recover the total unpaid premium amounting to over $1 million. The civil complaint against Wall Design was filed within four years after the issuance of the final bill, but more than four years after Wall Design first failed to pay the premium and the policy cancellation date. 
Wall Design demurred to the fund's complaint, arguing that the applicable four-year statute of limitations for breach of a written contract barred all the causes of action. And the trial court sustained the demur without leave to amend on the ground the complaint was not timely filed and that the statute of limitations commenced to run when Wall Design first breached the contract by failing to pay premium. The Court of Appeal, in the published opinion of State Fund versus Wall Design, reversed. The court reasoned that the insurance policies were executory contracts. By definition, they could not be fully performed by either party until after expiration. The statute of limitations on a cause of action for breach of an executory contract generally does not begin to run until the time for full performance has arrived. Under the terms of the insurance policies, the statute of limitations on the fund's cause of action for breach of contract to recover the unpaid premium did not commence to run until the fund demanded payment of the premium after completion of the final audit. Wall Design's failure to pay the premiums due in December 2003 before the end of the agreed-upon insurance period did not start the statute of limitations. The court published the opinion in this case of first impression to make clear that when an insurance policy states that the insurer has three years after the end of the policy period to complete an audit of the insurer's records in order to determine the final premium due and the insurer completes that audit and timely submits a final bill to the insured, the statute of limitations begins to run on the date the final bill is sent. And now our fraud report. Fourteen people, including two doctors, face federal charges stemming from a Medicare fraud scheme in which patients were recruited and paid for illegally obtaining prescription drugs that were later sold on the street. The five-count indictment also accuses Los Angeles-based Lake Medical Group of fraudulently billing Medicare and Medi-Cal more than $6 million for services that were either unnecessary or never performed. In addition, a portion of Medicare that provides coverage for drugs through private insurance plans paid about $2.7 million for the powerful painkiller OxyContin that was prescribed by the clinic and its doctors. Ten people have either been arrested or agreed to surrender. Among those charged with conspiracy to distribute controlled substances were doctors Eleanor Santiago and Morris Halfon, as well as pharmacist Theodore Yoon. Investigators said the scam involved the clinic using recruiters known as cappers who brought in Medicare and Medi-Cal patients who were often issued a prescription for OxyContin. They were then offered up to $500 to get the prescriptions filled. Runners took the patients to pharmacies, including some run by Yoon, where the prescriptions were filled. The clinic's administrator was given the pills that were then sold on the street for roughly $25 each. The pills usually cost about $6. On two occasions, a total of 22 bottles of OxyContin containing nearly 2,000 pills were sold to a confidential informant. Federal prosecutors said the clinic diverted about 900,000 OxyContin pills and covered up the scheme by not reporting the prescriptions issued by Lake Medical Group to a state monitoring program. The clinic and some of its staff also is accused of generating prescriptions for people whose identities were stolen and never made a visit. 
The runners took those prescriptions and paid the pharmacies for OxyContin, which also made its way to the black market. Four of the people charged with conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud created fake records to make it appear that legitimate and necessary medical services were performed on recruited patients. The clinic allegedly used a billing company to funnel the false claims to Medicare and Medi-Cal, some of which were paid by the agencies. A Turlock postal worker pleaded guilty to mail-in workers' compensation fraud. Karina Beard pleaded guilty to four counts of mail fraud and two counts of federal workers' comp fraud. According to the plea agreement, Beard received workers' compensation benefits for an on-the-job injury she sustained in 2000 while working for the Postal Service. Because of her claimed injuries, restrictions were placed on her physical activities. According to the plea, Beard performed various physical tasks using the purportedly injured part of her body, such as horseback riding. According to court documents, Beard also made false claims on a U.S. Department of Labor Office of Workers' Compensation Programs form. Beard faces a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison and $250,000 fine for each count of mail fraud when she is sentenced on January 9th. She also could face up to five years in prison and a $250,000 fine for each count of workers' comp fraud. Regulators fighting an estimated 60 to 90 billion dollars a year in Medicare fraud frequently suspend Medicare providers and then quickly reinstate them after appeals hearings that government employees don't even attend. Federal prosecutors say the speedy reinstatements, though helpful to legitimate suppliers who get snagged on technicalities or minor violations, amount to a missed chance to cut off the flow of taxpayer dollars to bogus companies that in many cases wind up under indictment. Some store owners have collected tens of thousands of dollars even after conviction. Making matters worse, Medicare officials have failed to collect a single cent from the security bonds that were instituted two years ago specifically to discourage <coughs> crooked providers from vanishing at the first sign of trouble from regulators. <clears throat> Millions of dollars sit unrecovered. Often, neither the government nor its private contractors attend the initial hearings when suspended companies appeal, allowing them to win practically by default. Officials at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services decline to say why. Drug dealers and mobsters have moved into Medicare scams because it affords greater payoffs and carries shorter prison sentences than drug trafficking or robbery. Between 2006 and 2009, officials revoked the licenses of 3,702 medical equipment companies in the fraud hotspots of South Florida, Los Angeles, Baton Rouge, Houston, Brooklyn, and Detroit. Those areas represent the highest concentrations of Medicare fraud in the country. Of the providers who lost their licenses in those cities, about 37% were eventually back in business, sometimes within days and often within months. And in regulatory news, industry groups praise Governor Brown for his many legislative vetoes, but also fret over what will happen in 2012. 
the California Coalition on Workers' Compensation and the Workers' Compensation Action Network said in a webinar that Brown's record on vetoes versus bills signed on workers' comp was perfect. Jason Smeltzer, a legislative advocate for CCWC, said he batted 1,000. The groups listed about a dozen pieces of workers' comp-related legislation that reached Brown's desk that they wanted him to sign and those bills they wished him to veto. Schmelzer said he signed what needed to be signed and vetoed what needed to be vetoed. And based on the messages sent by the governor and his staff along with those vetoes, the groups think broad reforms are coming. According to the group, the five-year trend for medical costs is up 40%, and the five-year trend for cash benefits is up 30%, while temporary disability benefits are being paid longer at higher levels. The groups also found fault with slower permanent disability settlements, including higher benefits, more litigation, and increases in expense costs. The bottom line is California's workers' compensation system is again recognized as one of the costliest, according to the report issued by the groups. And if the trend continues, the handful of bills that come out of the state legislature each year aimed at fixing aspects of the system will not be able to keep up with problems that arise each year. And in medical news, although it is common for industrial claimants to deny any history of a pre-existing mental disorder, a new study says that statistically that may not be the case. More than 1 in 10 Americans over the age of 12 takes an antidepressant. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics, antidepressants were the third most common drug used by Americans of all ages, and they were the most common drug amongst people aged 18 to 44. The team analyzed data on more than 12,000 Americans who took part in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys. They found that antidepressants used in the United States jumped nearly 400% in the last 15 years. The increase followed the 1987 FDA approval of Eli Lilly's Prozac, the first of a new class of antidepressants known as Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs. According to the survey, U.S. women are two and a half times more likely than men to take antidepressants, and whites are more likely than blacks to take the drugs. Once prescribed, many people continue to take antidepressants, with more than 60% of Americans who use the drugs report being on them for two years or more and about 14% of Americans taking antidepressant medication have done so for 10 years or longer. Patients who take the drugs often get them from their regular doctor rather than a mental health professional. Although first introduced for depression, several antidepressants are now used to treat a host of problems including anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, bulimia, and even post-traumatic stress disorder. Sticker shock has caused a big orthopedic device sales decline. With 14 million Americans searching for work, lack of health insurance is one reason some people are putting off medical procedures such as joint surgery. 
For those who do have jobs and insurance, the fear of being expendable at work combined with sticker shock from rising out-of-pocket expenses is also a deterrent to getting care. Some older patients are even waiting until they are eligible for the government-funded Medicare program at the age of 65. As the economy struggles to avoid recession, sales of medical devices such as artificial hips and knee joints are expected to remain sluggish into next year. Some analysts have scaled back growth forecasts for the big orthopedic and cardiac device makers, throwing in the towel on hopes for a modest pickup in demand next year. Some experts are even calling this a new normal for the medical device industry. New U.S. government and congressional investigations into unnecessary procedures as well as patient complaints, incomplete safety data, and several high-profile device recalls have also grabbed media headlines in the last two years. According to research from J.P. Morgan, which keeps a database on 8,000 U.S. physicians, office visits in September declined 8% from a year ago, following a 7% drop in August and a 4% slump in July. Visits in the third quarter fell to the lowest level since the bank began collecting data in the first quarter of 2008 and mirror a drop-off in U.S. consumer confidence. Device makers are also under pressure with the implementation of a U.S. health care overhaul, which is expected to bring cuts in Medicare reimbursement rates for hospitals. That means doctors and other health care providers are likely to take an even harder line on the pricing and use of medical technology. With an aging population and more baby boomers approaching retirement age, physicians and analysts alike believe some bounce back in the procedure is inevitable. The timing, however, continues to elude industry watchers. And in financial news, U.S. workers' compensation policy sales plunged 11% in 2010 as continued unemployment depressed demand, according to an A&M Best Company announcement. Policy sales fell to $11 billion from $12.4 billion in 2009 for companies in A.M. Best Workers' Compensation Composite Index. Revenue has decreased for six straight years and is down 48% from the 2004 high of $21 billion. A.M. Best said that conditions appear to be grim over the near term as the segment continues to experience a long list of challenges. Underwriting results are expected to weaken further before they get better. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.